how is india how are things in india at the moment uh to start with it's really hot oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's like 42 degrees where i am right now oh wow it's crazy and that's 42 c not 42 fahrenheit so that's quite hot oh god very hot <laughs> <laughs> wow cool uh we don't get that anywhere near that in the uk as i'm sure you're well aware Perhaps yeah, we... i'm glad you don't get that yeah so am i so am i we i mean it occasionally here hits 30 and the whole world goes insane and everyone becomes incapable of doing anything and no one has aircon anywhere so it does become quite impossible but it doesn't happen very often so we're gonna have like 42 for the next two months 60 days flat it's gonna oh be boy. great wow and how, do do you are like fully uh, organized with climate climate what is it climate machines or climate thingies yeah. in the hospital because our hospital would like crush if we had like 40 degrees <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah hospitals obviously uh, got temperature control somewhere close 25 20 something so but once you step out the temperature difference hits you and that's what? that's yeah. it for, that, that's <laughs> I yeah. mean, you dread getting out. Keeps me in the hospital for long. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wow. Great. So should we crack on? Should, do you want to start by telling us a bit about your, um, like, growing up in India, how you came to go to medical school and become interested in hematology, I suppose? Yeah. So uh, basically, uh, I grew up in Bombay, uh, Mumbai, basically. That's where I did my entire schooling, my uh, basic junior college and uh, med school, as well as my internal medicine residency. So that's close to 26 years of life in Bombay. Post which uh, I came to this place called Lucknow, which is in Uttar Pradesh. Uh, that's where I am right now in my final year of uh, hematology and oncology fellowship. So this is an institute, basically, it's a tertiary care center dealing predominantly with uh, heme malignancies, uh, not so much of solid malignancies exposure, it's predominantly heme and heme onc. So that's, that's, that's about the start of it. Like uh, growing up in Bombay was something uh, uh, which I, I would say I'm quite lucky to have done that because everything was like, you know, close by and med school was something which was, uh, I don't know, it was not meant to happen per se, I thought. Nobody in my family is uh, remotely uh, into medicine. They're all into law and stuff like that. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's how it went by. And what, what would you say influenced you to, uh, to decide to go for hematology? Uh, so this is a little bit of a personal thing per se, because uh, when I was growing up and I got into med school, my dad was detected with uh, chronic myeloid leukemia. This was way back in 2008. So uh, we just had imatinib. I believe that was the story in the whole of the world. So unfortunately, he didn't quite make it. He had a primary resistant disease to imatinib. We didn't have any sort of testing available. So it was either imatinib or it was interferon. So four months into imatinib is when he progressed to accelerated phase and then blast crisis. And I had no clue what, 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 all, what all is happening. I barely went to the hospital. I couldn't see him in that state. Uh, so the initial few months when he was an imatinib were like smooth, it was great. So I thought, okay, this is so cool. You know, you, you're actually controlling a malignancy with a single drug. And that's what imatinib was like a true wonder drug, I would say. But once, you know, I, I realized that, okay, there is a lot of stuff beyond it. And that uh, triggered my interest in hemat. And then uh, he was taken up for a bone marrow transplant, a mat sibling donor. That's when, you know, I was like, okay, we can cure malignancies with someone else's bone marrow. I mean, I thought, okay, that's not possible. I was like a lowly uh, first year med school student. So don't judge me here. <laughs> I was like, okay, that's quite cool. And this is something that I uh, would love to do if, you know, I, I'm given a chance. Come second year, you know, pathology and uh, Robbins triggered my interest in uh, him further ended up reading more and more heme and that's when I decided I'm either going to be a pediatrician or I'm going to do internal medicine because the ultimate goal was hematology so yeah that's how I ended up in hematology. Oh wow and how does medical training work in India so after med school do you make a choice between what you go into then or do you get chance to rotate through different things do a little bit of 
a few things before having to decide ultimately what you want to go into. Okay, uh, so how it works is uh, we start off with med school, which is post our uh, 12 standard exams or, you know, the junior college, as we call it. So med school is somewhere around five and a half years. We call it MBBS. I believe it's the same in uh, UK, if I'm not wrong. Yeah. So that's fine. Five and a half years. That's including a one year rotatory internship wherein you rotate through, um, you know, three months in medicine, three months in surgery, uh, a month and a half in pediatrics and two months in gynecology, stuff like that. And so uh, the, the post which you appear for a All India exam, basically, that's like a sort of an entrance exam, wherein close to around uh, 100,000 or 200,000 students appear or med students appear. Wow. And so you've got close to maybe 10,000 seats. So it's like a one in 10 ratio of getting in. And that includes uh, all your, uh, you know, non-government schools and your private sector schools, which are not so sought after. So you want to get into a government funded institute because of two reasons, the, the patient load, and that's where you're going to be actually learning. And also it's uh, much more economic. Uh, so government school uh, is three years of internal medicine residency, wherein uh, you rotate through, you know, bigger specialties like uh, cardiology and nephrology and neurology. But I don't think there's any sort of exposure to hemonc, like maybe like a 10 or 15 day uh, rotation through the hemonc unit, if at all, and absolutely no exposure to transplants. I mean, uh, so that's like a distant dream during internal medicine residency. It's quite heavy, so it's not that you know you feel that you want to rotate. The only thing you want to do is you know get home, crash. <laughs> <laughs> and um, um, what would you say is in India um, like the, the biggest difference? I don't know. Have Have you ever been to to Europe or the US? Uh, not for medical training. Mm -hmm. I've been otherwise. Uh, mm -hmm. I haven't been exposed to the healthcare in uh, Europe and US, okay. so I'm not really. Yeah, I won't because, be able to draw comparisons because it was. It's just uh, for India for me personally. It's it's just a, a constant feeling of uh, being overwhelmed because we 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 because you just said you have two hundred thousand medical students. This is just completely blowing my mind here in Germany. Um, uh, what, what what would you say are like in in your experience the biggest differences challenges um, you would say um, we need to understand if we talk about uh, India um, healthcare in general um, education. Uh, so as you said, you know the sheer number uh, it, it's it's quite overwhelming as you rightly put it. Uh, so it's basically like a struggle for existence. When you're a med student, you you know you feel you've done put in five and a half years of hard work, and uh, you find yourself nowhere. Uh, post which you know the struggle to get into med school uh, to get into a decent residency program begins. Uh, to bring out all the bias and everything associated with the interviews, we've done away with that. It's more of a multiple choice question uh, based entrance exam wherein you crack it. So it's, you know, it, everything is like, you know, make or break on one particular day that itself is quite overwhelming. You know, you, you being judged on uh, an exam that's going to last just three hours. So a lot of good people, a lot of, you know, strong candidates will not make it. You know, some people are not so good at solving multiple choice questions. Some people might just not be doing so good that day. Uh, so that's one huge barrier, and I don't think that that's the best way to get into a, a residency program, but, uh, well, that's how it is. Once you get into residency, again, it's the sheer volume, the patient load. So I think it's uh, it's something that uh, teaches us as well. I mean, uh, if you survive med school in or, you know, residency in India, I, I think that uh, you're sorted. I mean, you can probably work your way and, you know, work it up in some other country maybe it's going to not be so difficult in terms of putting in the hours so what we uh, are not so exposed to during uh, our residency tenure is uh, something like you know clinical research uh, data keeping is is quite poor uh, a lot of places would not have electronic medical records it's still some handwritten notes even in like uh, metro cities so uh, because even if you have an EMR, you don't have the time to enter in the data, the patient notes. It's just about, you know, the number of admissions in each uh, emergency, 24-hour emergency, we would admit close to 
120 patients and have an OPD of close to seven to 800 uh, patients. So that's a general medicine OPD. Again, overwhelming numbers, impossible to enter records, keep any sort of data. So that is one huge, uh, you know, disadvantage, I would say that, you know, Indian medical trainees have, I mean, the, the, the intricacies of clinical trials or something is you learn to dig it out only during your fellowship days and not during your internal medicine residency. And I think that's a wee bit late, maybe three years too late compared to the West. But I guess like on the opposite hand, the va- like just the sheer volume of clinical experience. I mean, you guys must have, and speaking to colleagues, like fellows I've worked with who've, who've come over from India, there's not like they've seen, they've seen everything and often multiple times as well, because I don't think there's, there can't quite be anything that prepares you for dealing with something than having had to deal with it. Um, especially when you've got a clinic full of so much stuff, just having to make decisions and things. Uh, yeah. So as you said, obviously it's all going to have the other, it's the other side of the coin on the flip side. Obviously that's amazing to have that sort of clinical exposure. You start doing things at a spinal level, you know, doing uh 15 lumbar punctures in one single night in, in the ERS itself, you know, you see three patients with tubercular meningitis just walk, you know, just being wheeled in. So the sheer volume teaches you to do things at a spinal level. And yeah, that that's like a huge positive. I mean, the patient load, the patient spectrum. And uh, we worked up a lot of hemong cases uh, during our medicine training itself without actually knowing what we were dealing with. And how does, how do the numbers vary? So when you do come to like specialized downs, to, to work in like him as a specialty or transplant, what sort of numbers are we talking there? And t- if there is such thing as a typical unit, I mean, I'm guessing. So, so that's, it's, it's a huge difference actually. Uh, the Institute where I did my uh, residency from, my internal medicine residency was like a busy center in Bombay. Bombay is again, like a tertiary care center for most of the state and even for a lot of other cities around. So uh, the numbers obviously aren't comparable. And secondly, we are working currently in the hemonc unit. Uh, we take patients only by referral. So that uh, reduces the number of walk-ins. There are, there's no concept of you know, a walk-in uh, patient. It's, it's only by referral. So the numbers are quite uh, controlled and uh, that's how we, you know, we're gonna be able to deliver some sort of quality because it's not always gonna be about quantity when it comes to hemonc. Uh, so on a typical OPD day out here, we'd have close to, again, 50 new patients, 50 new hemong patients, and close to 200 or 250 follow-up patients. So that would be like including our patients who are on chemotherapy for ALL and AMLs and whatever, CMLs. We have dedicated OPDs uh, three times a week. Um, Mondays being for aplastic anemias and uh, MPNs. Wednesday is a dedicated CML day and Friday we have just myelomas and other plasma cell disorders. So those are the days the numbers are not restricted. So it even reaches close to 300 myeloma patients on a Friday. Wow. Okay. Uh, well, this is, um, let, let, give me just this hour of our conversation to, uh, to realize what, what you <laughs> always just say. Um, but, um, let's maybe let's come back to you um when you we said that um you there's a lot of potential for seeing a lot of diseases and when when one follows you for instance on twitter uh, i think uh, me personally I'm, i'm quite overwhelmed with your with your vast like experience you put out there and the questions uh, surrounding many diseases etc i think that's an a really advantage and a really beautiful beautiful opportunity you, you just uh, realize on Twitter to um, yeah educate people and especially trainees but um, when it comes to you do you have like a, a specialty or are you just a general hematologist uh, so there's uh, we've got units and we've got uh, attendings who are specializing in different diseases like myelomas and lymphomas and we we don't have units per se we rotate through all of them and we are expected to attend all the opds uh, but uh, and yeah so that's how it works i mean as a trainee you're exposed to all of it and it's not like something that you specialize in so that would be an advanced fellowship post your three years of uh, dm as we call it so that's a doctorate in medicine so i'm in my final year of that so no particular specialization. It's all of hemong. We see almost everything as trainees. And do you have any particular 
interest or anything that you might want to specialize into or uh yeah so as i said uh, i'm highly you know motivated to do transplants and fortunately uh, i've been um, you know I've, I've applied for a fellowship to princess margaret and i've been uh, accepted there so i start in 2023 uh, august so yeah that's next year 15 months to go so allogenic transplant and CAR-T is something which I really uh, would be, you know, interested to bring to India. CAR-T is like in its infancy in India, just a few centers offering it on a trial basis, like pilot projects, like six patients, 10 patients, a huge potential, a huge population and like a huge unmet need uh, when it comes to, you know, especially like uh, ALLs and uh, patients with uh, DLBCLs and stuff like that, because there's no way that we're going to be able to afford stuff like uh, the, the the research products i mean we have to make it in-house and this is something which is really going to grow leaps and bounds in the coming years so that was one reason i applied for the fellowship so you think like new therapy set that would be because you, you said about um you said it's affording new therapies is is quite a challenge in in india man, many depending on the area you live in but uh, you think that cellular therapies, for instance, CAR-T, you will focus on trying to really produce them by yourself and not um, buying something like Axicel or Tizacel or something like that? Uh, that's going to be a huge problem because uh, the cost of these therapies is going to be beyond uh, the average uh, patient population. I mean, it's not going to work out. So in-house CAR-T is something that's going to be like the way to go forward in uh, India, at least. Uh, I'm really new into this field. I don't know how this entire thing works. I'm going to explore more of it during my fellowship days. But uh, that's the long term plan. I mean, get a basic hang of theme right now and uh, specialize in that. And how does uh, how does funding work in India for just like for a typical patient who needed a transplant, I don't know, for high risk AML or something? How would the funding work? Uh, so that's uh, two sets of patient populations. So if you're walking into a government center, uh, you, that's because probably you know you're not insured and uh, you don't have the means to afford um, healthcare in the private sector. So in the private sector, it's completely different. You've got people who are insured under private schemes and everything like that. So that's a different thing. The center which I'm working at, uh, we predominantly work on uh, a lot of government funding and. Uh, help through the prime minister and the chief minister fund so uh, that's how the most that's how most of the funding works and uh, the rest of it is out of pocket so that's the biggest challenge i mean Gosh. the patient is paying for his own therapy and that's mm -hmm. never going to be enough with the kind of drugs that we are dealing with you know affording 3mg per kg nivolumab is not going to be possible for an average indian so it's it's a different uh, ball game altogether when it comes to you know reading the trials and actually bring it to the patient and what proportion of the population would rely on that government like funding as opposed to the proportion of the population who would have access to the private and, and be insured do you know uh so i can just put across some random numbers i don't have the source for this but uh, if you walk into a government center then that's close to like 80 percent of the patients are going to be relying on a government fund Wherein if you're going into and walking into a private healthcare sector, like a private hospital, then you're probably, you know, not going to be relying on any sort of fund. You'll be insured or you'll have the means to afford therapy. So it's a completely different game. When if you walk into a government center, you, you're definitely going to depend on the government fund, which is not so difficult to get. Actually, a lot of people do get the funding. And that is how we have been able to, you know, provide uh, even uh, novel agents for disease like Hodgkin's and uh, we are using a lot of venetoclax for AML. And uh, that's obviously going to be, uh, you know, uh, you don't need any sort of funding. So it's okay. You're free to use it at whatever patient spectrum you want. Maybe less than 75, you feel, okay, it's not approved, but I don't care. I can use it. The patient's mm -hmm. paying for it. You feel that, you know, he's a high risk AML. I don't have to wait for, you know, approval from any authority. That's, that's like the positive to it. The, the time from, you know, decision-making to initiation of therapy is, is not so long, actually. In, in four days, I can have an etoclax and start the patient on HMA when. So and that's, that's in, to, in, in total, in India, do you have like um, 
an idea how many patients are funded um, or are going to private hospitals and how many are going to government hospitals? Uh, as I said, I, I, can't, I can't give you the source, I can't give you the data, but it's, mm -hmm. it's going to be close to 70 to 80 percent in government versus just 20 to 30 percent in the private sector because okay. uh, the government sector is like spread across the country in the remote parts of the country, whereas the private healthcare is uh, basically in the second tier and uh, you know the metro cities. So the number of patients coming there is not going to match you know the remote interior population. The rural population is entirely dependent on government healthcare. So that would be a rough approximation, close to 70% in the health uh, government sector and around 25 to 30% would seek private health care. And um, allo, allo, if, you, if you want to specialize uh, in allogenic transplantation, um, we talk to uh, people from Latin America. They uh, may have not the same issues, but sometimes like um, issues that maybe overlaying with with you guys especially especially when it comes to the difference of cities and the rural areas i also have no idea how, how that may be working out in in india the, because of the sheer size of the of the country but um do you also have the opportunity to do um allogenic transplants um off hospital so in uh outpatient transplants or do you usually do inpatient in hospital? Uh, so at our center, we're doing 100% uh, inpatient transplants by referral only. Um, no outpatient transplants, unlike, you know, Mexico and stuff like that. I've been reading stuff from there, but uh, nothing of that sort yet in India. It's all inpatient. Hmm. And in your That's sense, yeah. feeling... sorry. So, no, and just uh, how many like inpatient transplant beds do you have in your center? At the uh, moment? We've got uh, eight transplant beds in our center and uh, four step-down units. So that's a 12-bedded unit altogether with uh, eight active transplants going on at a time. So maybe like that's a good mix of allo and auto and haplos. We're just starting off mud in our center, mm -hmm. uh, but math sibling and haplos we've been doing for the last uh, 15, 20 years, 20 years actually. 20 years haplo. Sorry? You, you, you did uh, haplo for 20 years now. No, 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 not haplo. I'm saying altogether the transplant altogether. has okay. been functioning for 20 years mm. uh, at our center. And uh, we've been doing haplos for the last three years, I believe. So that's mm. maybe a year before I joined this institute. We just started haplos back then. So predominantly it was just MSDs before that. And we're yet to start MUDs in our center. Uh, probably around uh, May this year is probably this next 15, 20 days is the plan. Okay. And what would you say... Um... If we if we talk about this general um, healthcare system, etc., but what would you say are, in your point of view, are the currently the biggest challenges you need to overcome, in in, in your or, or you you want to overcome or you you're targeting, what what needs to to change basically? Okay, so one uh, the biggest issue is that uh, all of this heme hemonk or whatever even cardiology or whatever we say is is not cardiology per se, but definitely hemonk and, you know, stuff like transplants are restricted to just, you know, metro cities and tier one, tier two cities. So it's, it's, it's a long time before it reaches, you know, a, a vast patient spectrum. And a lot of patients even uh, succumb to their illnesses even before they reach, uh, you know, a tertiary care center via the route of referral sometimes. And plus there are a lot of social barriers, you know, people have this, okay, if I, if I, if I use a donor for transplant, the donor is also not going to you know, do well, maybe something's going to happen to the donor. So there's a lot of inhibitions when it comes to transplant. So that needs to uh, really, you know, be addressed. And uh, so the patients who reach us are probably like, you know, the 10% of patients who actually need us. So that's a huge unmet need. Uh, and that's in addition to, you know, the biology of the disease, which probably differs uh, to a certain extent in our spectrum compared to the West. Uh, we have a much younger patient population compared to the West. So, most of our illnesses, you know, myelomas are not restricted to, you know, 60 and above. We have a huge load of uh, so-called young myelomas, somewhere close to 40, 45. And they have a huge life ahead of them and, you know, young kids and pr probably the only earning member of the family. So, and uh, a lot of times, you know, we are faced with that dilemma. Okay, I don't want to use this drug upfront, even if he's affording it, because, okay, what next? He's not going to get CAR-T. He's not going to, you know, get Pelantamab. He's not going to get 
Okay, definitely happy that he's not going to get selling next or. <laughs> but but what about what about the next line? So when we start thinking on these lines, it's you know we're always on the defensive first. Cannot go on the offensive even with an aggressive disease. I have a plasma cell leukemia in my ward, and, you know, fit enough for VTD pace, but I'll be like, okay, I can't give VTD pace because what if she gets an infection? What if she doesn't have funds to, you know, tide off the infection later? She can afford therapy now, but what if, you know, they run out of funds? It's completely dependent on government care. If she depletes the fixed amount, okay, it's done. They have to sell off land and, you know, arrange money. So these are the social issues which you have to keep in mind when you decide upon a plan. And I believe it's the same everywhere, but more so with us mm. every second patient is going to have that sort of issue i really like um your your uh, if i can say that um your tone how you how you say that because it's so natural um and because my feeling especially in, in germany i am not sure how it is in in the uk but especially now with the car t's cellular therapies um if you have like a a healthcare system that is really uh, built on solidarity where everyone everybody pays into it then you're more vulnerable if the healthcare system breaks down because of um the too much too much money that is involved in, in any therapy and this will happen basically if car t are rolled out uh, in a wider range and and that's why i really like how, how you talk about it because it's it's something that uh, we all need to talk about and i think we need to learn from you because you're you're completely like neutral about it and just say yeah, I, i can't do it so i need to find alternatives i really like that thank you there's no other way to work around it yeah i mean we were related when you know we were like okay our patient's going to afford venetoclax okay great it's going to work well for him we have to use that he's definitely not going to respond to 7 plus 3 and probably use that money to probably you know allo, allo transplant him rather than use up the money for uh, you know daratumumab maybe take him up for an auto which is going to work out better for him in the long run so you start thinking you know about how to you know cut corners and save some cost and eventually it ends up helping the patient true and in terms of like a, like infection prophylaxis and things alongside transplants again i guess that's all additional costs are they automatic like that you would give for everyone or does that again depend on particular patients and some patients may choose to forego that to try and afford the treatment itself and and then have more issues with infection and things uh so uh we obviously we do have a lot more infections compared to the west but uh, our transplant unit is a hepa filtered unit and uh, fortunately we're not seeing a huge you know plethora of, of complications that we would otherwise expect uh, you know in in the indian scenario so we're lucky actually in at our center that we're not having a lot of these complications universal antifungal prophylaxis we're using posaconazole the the biggest advantage in india is uh, the you know the availability of generics we're not dependent on the research molecule for a long time so once dara goes generic probably everyone's going to get dara and we'll be able to generate the biggest data although it might not get published because we won't have the data recorded <laughs> but we we would have treated more number of patients than you know probably some people in the west would have so the generics are something which are a real blessing to our population we're using lenalidomide generic for like the past i don't know maybe 7 8 years 10 years i wasn't even into heme that that long back so thalidomide is something that has been completely phased out it's it's len and pom for our myelomas venetoclax we don't have a generic but um, fortunately patients are affording it a lot of other uh, you know our uh, antifungals and everything we have generics available really soon dasatinib is uh, like completely generic is available now so in terms of you know our cml patients they're able to afford everything we have generic ponatinib uh, as well so that really helps brings down the cost a lot and fortunately that's the only way our patients are able to afford those drugs otherwise there's no way that they'll be able to afford the research molecule for longer than 2 months i i'm I, i'm repeating myself but i really like how how you talk about it because um when in 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 europe or maybe even in, in the us you always hear like uh, generics is something like a ooh, obscure thingy and and yeah but let's face it without generics how do you think the world uh, 
it's yeah, works. Yeah, um, I really like that. What what is it? Uh, what's about um, donors in India? Um, do you where do the donors come from? Do you have um, most of the donors come from within India, or do, do you do you do you have knowledge of that? You're talking of mud donors, right? Yeah. Yeah. So we have a registry, uh, the Datri. So we have a lot of Indian donors as well registered. And uh, we have a lot of uh, donors from across the borders as well and even from the West. So that's not so much of an issue. As I said, we've not done a lot of mud. Not, I have not done a single mud in my uh, three years as a HEME resident. Uh, so that's not something that I'll be really confident commenting upon. But haplos and stuff is like predominantly, you know, the standard right now for us. Not so much into muds at our center. So not really aware of that. Well, and um, I guess it's more probably in the PEDS setting. There are a lot of transplants, I think, from colleagues who I've worked with who have come from India and things. There's a lot of like transplant for hemoglobinopathies um, done in centers in India. Do you, does that translate at all? Do you do any in adults? Or is that all purely pediatric? Uh, so yeah, uh, we do he, uh, thalassemia transplants at our center over the last, uh, like I've, I've been a part of four thalassemia patients who've been transplanted, mostly in like Pesaro grade two, grade three, sometimes even grade three. I mean, you have to deal with it. Uh, they're arranging money, they progress, and they've been transplanted, not enough money for chelation at times. But fortunately, uh, most of our patients have been uh, grade two with uh, decent outcomes with FTD, so working fine. What was the biggest um, challenge or, um, yeah, what, what changed with the COVID pandemic? How, how are you affected by it right now? How are hospitals affected by it right now? Oh, it's been huge. I mean, uh, the sheer numbers, again, have contributed to a lot of, you know, uh, modality has been quite high. I mean, fortunately, the center where I'm working at, uh, we had a dedicated COVID hospital, which was built up in no, no time, maybe just like 15 days of the start of pandemic in 2020, we had the hospital up and running. So we converted the entire trauma center into a hospital. So uh, initial first wave, we didn't have a lot of uh, deaths, but the second wave was crazy. The, the Delta wave was really crazy. But I think for our patients, it was more of, uh, you know, like, missing out on uh, their appointments and, you know, the OPDs being shut, the doctors being shunted to COVID care. So it was more like a collateral damage rather than a direct damage. Uh, we did see a lot of patients uh, coming in with advanced stage diseases because the referral doctors were like, you know, late to refer or probably, you know, they were busy with COVID and the patients also ignored because, you know, they needed a COVID test or an RT-PCR. But the vaccine rollout has been amazing. I mean, um, post-2021, uh, so yesterday we crossed the 1 billion vaccination mark in India. I'm sure you're aware oh. of that. So oh. the numbers, and it's actually translated on, uh, you know, the ground level. I mean, every patient, fortunately, that I've interacted with has been fully vaccinated, has had these questions, you know, should I get vaccinated? Can I get vaccinated? Rather than, oh, you know, oh, I don't want to get vaccinated. The hesitancy for us has been really low in our patient population. And uh, that's, that's been a real plus for us. I mean, uh, the vaccine has saved people. I mean, we're beyond that phase of denying, okay, is it going to work? Is it not going to work? I mean, now it's kind of, you know, behind us and we're kind of back to, you know, full swing probably sometime in Jan this year is when we got back to our routine OPD numbers and not restricting any numbers because of the COVID pandemic. And uh, the inpatients have been almost close to, five to 10 inpatients with COVID right now. So it's a huge reduction compared to what we had. We had 300 inpatients with, in the COVID hospital. Now we've got five or 10. So the numbers have definitely gone down and things are getting back to normal, fortunately. Can't, uh, you know, wait to travel now. <laughs> and the, the vaccinations are all um, produced by you guys in India, right? So you didn't import anything from... Uh, no. The, okay. the Serum Institute of India, the, uh, the Shadox vaccine, the, the Oxford, but mm. it's manufactured in India by the Serum Institute at Pune. Mm. So that's what we are predominantly using. Mm. Okay. And um, are, what are the numbers now? Are you completely free to, to travel without any masking or, or what's the situation at the moment? 
So it's again uh, very uh, specific to each state in the country. Uh, and again, within the state, uh, in each district and each hospital has its own rules. So in our hospital, uh, patients have to be universally masked if possible. Doctors are definitely masked. And uh, I, I prefer it that way. I mean, we, we're dealing with like usually immunocompromised patients and I don't want to, you know, affect them in any sort of way and them affect them, the other patients in any sort of way. So it's better we're all masked and it's it's patients are quite comfortable because our hemong kids were anyway so comfortable with masking they were like okay now everyone's masking so mm -hmm. i had a patient come up to me and be like okay why why is everyone wearing a mask now i thought it was only for me and this was <laughs> only during the covid pandemic so mm -hmm. the kid had no idea <laughs> mm -hmm. oh nice yeah but it's um when we come come back to you maybe because uh i i just need to say this i'm, I'm quite impressed by um yeah, how comfortable and how how self-conscious you, you you talk and 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 you yeah you you just share your your knowledge uh, online etc. Um, what in your training you during your current career what what do you think um, influenced you? Did did you have a mentor or what was it that you that kept you going? Oh uh, yeah, so uh, had like. Uh real good uh, attending uh, to work with out here in my in my center i mean uh, someone with a knowledge pool in each uh, of their you know diseases that they specialize in uh, we've got um, one of our consultants is a pediatrician who is um, big time into transplants another one is into myeloma so uh, they're all uh, you know there to help us out each time and it's like uh, baby steps in the world for me right now uh, teaching online is not something which i do to teach per se it's because if I put it out there, it's, you know, it's for my learning. I mean, definitely the comments are going to teach me more than I'm going to teach the world. I mean, it's not about teaching. I'm too young to be doing that. But I believe that it's always mutual. I mean, I've learned so many things from, you know, Aaron Goodman and uh, Mani across in the West who I've connected with on Twitter. And it's been such a useful platform for me. And, you know, with, the, with respect to fellowship applications for, uh, you know, with the Princess Margaret thing altogether, everything's just through Twitter. I've been really blessed to, um, you know, connect with uh, really, uh, you know, good people on Twitter, like you included. I mean, I, I'm so glad that you approached me for this podcast. Mm. <laughs> it's only through that medium that we, we've connected. Yeah. And is there a trainee community within India? Um, is there a formal trainee community of any kind or? Uh, it's not formal. It's it's like an informal kind of a trainee committee. Yeah. We don't have like, you know, a formal working uh, unit kind of thing. It's more so just like you know, on an interactive basis. Should we change that? <laughs> oh, we should. I'd love to. Yeah, because I'm, I'm just, uh, it's uh, for me, I don't know what, what the feeling for Claire is, is every time we, and that's why I, I wanted to do this, this podcast, because uh, the, the one thing is to follow someone um online and see how they work the other thing is to really talk to them and feel the insecurities oneself has when uh, i ask questions and i don't want to tip on anybody's toes because i don't know much about the country because i've never been there and uh it's just a, a blessing to to hear these differences i really i really love this because i think uh, we can learn so much more and thereby change something and i think the the expression you 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 just had about how you need to approach things i think we need to approach these things as well in the same uh, with the same style uh, and um, that's why i would love to collaborate more actively and get to know um, more about India, how it works, the realities, differences, etc. Oh, I'd love to show you around if COVID <laughs> permits and you plan to visit someday. <laughs> yeah, let's book something. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, it's been great. We've learned like so much about how and I think one thing that strikes us every time we do podcast, um, particularly with people working in like different settings is just how it's the same thing like transplant is the same thing but it's just so different in all of the diff these different locations what would you um 
if there is a thing you don't have at the moment in India, what would that be you wished for, for free? Mm. <laughs> More transplant centers. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and doctors with an adequate training in transplant. I mean, just making centers would not be enough. I mean, uh, given the population, uh, the, the ratio is like, you know, really highly skewed in the negative side so we really need more uh, hemong doctors and people with you know basic training in hematology if not transplanters definitely uh, more hematologists to begin with i mean it's a really growing field it's really booming in the country a lot more uh, institutes have now started offering uh, you know fellowships in hematology so it's growing but uh, you'll be surprised at the numbers so with this huge population we just produce um, close to 80 hematologists a year what Wow. Did you say 80? Yeah, it's okay. <laughs> All right. And, uh, yeah, definitely. There's work to be done, I guess, in yeah. enticing people to choose hematology. Okay. And, what and, do yeah. you think is the reason for that? Uh, as I said, uh, not too many mentors, right? So, not too mm. many people uh, who trained in hematology. The same number for cardiology would be somewhere close to 800. So, that's, that's 10 times more. Still not enough. Still not enough. I'm not saying 800 is enough, uh, but uh, 80 is definitely not enough. We don't have so many places offering uh, fellowships in hematology. So five years, you know, back we just had four or five centers in the entire country which were offering a dedicated fellowship in hematology. That when I say dedicated fellowship, I mean three years of DM or uh, the equivalent. So that was just close to 40 seats, and now we've doubled up in the last three years. So positive signs but yet to reach statistical significance <laughs> and do you think do you think that's a problem like it could be due to the lack of centers and specific training that um fellows from india end up going abroad and then potentially staying there as staying like staying be it in the states be it in europe be it somewhere else do you think indian trainees who are interested and in go elsewhere then they may not necessarily return uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, it is quite a big issue. It is quite a big an issue. I mean, a lot of uh, my senior colleagues uh, have emigrated, and that's obviously not working out well for the country when it comes to you know bringing back the and bringing back and applying the training that they've received in the West. Uh, yeah, that has been an issue, but uh, with the growing number of trainees, I believe that's probably uh, going to just, you know, take things in the positive direction. And maybe we have more people who stay back in the country or, you know, come back and get advanced training uh, abroad and come back and, you know, use it on the population and I mean, serve the population of the country. And because that's really required, uh, there's a lot of, you know, people who are uh, not served yet and, uh, there's a lot of population who's in need of, uh, you know, good hematologists and, you know, transplanters per se. Mm -hmm. uh, very few number of transplants even today, even autologous transplants, allogenic would be even lesser. Uh, but we're heading there, definitely moving ahead in the right direction. And is it because of earnings? Um, because of, is this a financial issue that people think they, they earn more money abroad or... Um... It's it's not only that. I mean, it's it's better training and uh, at times, you know, um, slightly more comfortable life, maybe. I mean, I'm yet to go check that side out. So probably, you know, when we connect maybe in a year, year and a half again, I've, I'll have seen both the sides. So might be in a slightly better position to answer that. Uh, I don't know what the senior colleagues are choosing, but a lot of them have come back to India and a lot of them are translating that into, you know, patient care. So that's that's a huge positive sign. And I intend to do the same. I mean, uh, not stay back abroad and try and bring it to the country. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> so uh, one key point we will follow up on is how we could uh, yeah, collaborate or uh, bring things uh, forward. I think we, we definitely need to do that. And because um, the story you are telling in, it, in India for me is, com is, is a completely positive one. And I don't, don't know why um, people, it's, it's the same with, um, unfortunately now in Ukraine is, has a big problem, but there was also the, the um, conversation we had in Ukraine is that there are, there, were, there are countries like India or Ukraine or Latin American countries who are really progressing. And we, 
we need to strengthen this uh, development in order to get the like a yeah a stable growth all over the all over the world and not get this kind of echo chamber thinking okay i, I just want to do myself uh, my my little stem cell transplant unit uh, because stem cell transplant i think for me per se is just a solidarity thing because without donors you're nothing yeah i think like sharing that enthusiasm like providing free resources for people and just trying to like have more and more people find out a bit on what it what it's about and the the vast spectrum within it as well there's so many different aspects of transplant hopefully it'll only be something that continues to grow and grow and become more accessible for the majority of people as opposed to the few people who currently seem to have access mm. globally at the moment yeah what would you say um maybe at the end what would you say to or how would you like to get more people uh emotionally uh what was it into stem cell transplant or hematology in general uh, <laughs> that's a tough one how do i get people into hematology uh probably disseminate the little knowledge that i've accumulated over the past three years tell them that it's you know like close to science fiction <laughs> probably works for med students and uh, a lot of people have approached me on uh, twitter dm like you know how's the feel like and um, what's the scope like and what what are the working hours what do you deal with what's the kind of patient spectrum that you deal with uh, are he malignancies curable and you know med students asking that so that's that's something that's going to you know you know pique people's interest in the field because uh, what we do as hematologists is as aaron goodman says on twitter you know it, it is science fiction i mean stem cell transplants, CAR-T is, is something that's, it's, it's really intriguing. And that's something that's really close to my heart. And I love doing that. I mean, I, I'm not a transplanter yet and nowhere close to, you know, being a transplanter as of today, but uh, hematology, even excluding transplants is, it's quite wonderful. I mean, it's extremely gratifying to treat these malignancies because uh, unlike solid malignancies, the kind of you know gratification that you get treating heme malignancies pediatric patients walking in a moribund state and uh, going back you know playing with their toys is something like really gratifying going to the ward each day seeing these kids you know recover day by day and you know logging their journey uh, i mean that's enough to get anyone interested in it so that's the kind of stories i would like to share with you know my junior colleagues and like you know med school probably help them you know get interested in the field tell them that it's not all depressing and cancers are not like, you know, a dead end. And mm. we've come a long way. I mean, if you take the example of, I always give the classic example of AML. I mean, moving from seven plus three to, you know, how many, 10 new uh, approvals in the last three years, four years. So that's the pace at which, uh, you know, hematology is growing. Mm. I believe, I don't think any other uh, subspecialty has seen that sort of, uh, you know, massive growth. Yeah. Yeah, and I, um, that's why I, I said emotionally, because uh, you and I, we share like say somehow the same experience. And I know a lot of people who got into hematology because of this first contact with stem cell transplant. And we're just like, what, there is something and this works? Okay, what? But I, I think we need, uh, and that's what you do, um, we need to enforce this feeling upon people to understand and um, with cellular therapies now or with new immunotherapy I think we just um, like copy this feeling from stem cell transplant into the non-transplant setting and I think that's why the community is so so active and so connected um, I believe there for instance on, on Twitter or, or other platforms no other field within medicine is so connected as hematologists at the moment and so there must be something to it. And um, yeah, that's why I really like how you talk about it. And, and I think we need to put it out there and to, to build on that, definitely. Yeah, heme, heme Twitter is something which is like, you know, unifying. I mean, uh, there's no way I would have met so many people had it not been for Twitter. So yeah, I mean, we really need to. I'm glad that, you know, you guys uh, want to reach out and we'll be, I'll be more than happy to collaborate on any sort of issues. So mm. it's really help us and i mean likewise
So if if you don't have any questions to us at the at the end, um, we would uh, like to thank you uh, for your time, uh, for your response, and um, I personally would love to uh, collaborate in the future to get keep in contact, to learn from one another, and yeah, to just spread the word. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like there's a lot to be done. Thanks so thanks so much, guys. I had one question. How does the you know the hematology training work in uh, you know let's say Germany and uh, mm. the UK, Claire? Because uh, that's something that I, I have not got much of an idea about. How do you guys go about it? Um, so in terms of UK, um, we obviously have medical school, um, five years, six years, depending on where people go and then we have two years which we call foundation years um, and so those foundation years people generally rotate around um, six or seven different specialties often do like four month blocks um, mixture of medicine surgery a and e like a bit of a mixed bag you can kind of select your rotations depending on what you think you might be interested in and then after, at that point, you decide whether you go into um, either like general practice, you can go in then, you can go into um, core medical training, core surgical training, or if you want to do something like pediatrics, obs and gynae, at, at those points, you can specialize there. And then for hematology, so I came to hematology from a pediatric background. I, I mean, I'm sure I must have done hematology at medical school, but I'm not going to lie, I don't really remember it. I stumbled <laughs> upon hematology as a second year pediatric trainee. I, I, um, I worked on the bone marrow transplant unit in um, Manchester Children's and just absolutely loved it, like loved the, the science behind it. And actually um, just, I mean, the first month I spent time trying to just work out what all the different acronyms meant and, and what these diseases that often... I'd never heard of were but when you start to read more and understand more about it and actually see the difference that it makes um I decided actually yeah and then um explored a bit more and you apply for hematology after you've done like your core exam so you either do it in core medicine from adult medicine if you've gone into that or you're like core pediatric exams and then you apply and then hematology training itself is five years in the UK um, so you need to get your FRC path qualification as part of that. And you do a bit of a, you rotate through different specialties. So you'll spend some time in the bigger university hospitals with access to transplant CAR-T. Um, you'll do a bit of um, hemostasis and thrombosis. You'll do clotting. And then there's a big lab component as well, because in the UK, um, we have to pass the pathology exams. And so you have to be competent in um, diagnosing things on blood films, bone marrows and things like that. Yeah, and in Germany, it's completely different. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, well, so in Germany, you do um, six years of um, medical school and in the last year, final year of medical school, you do three months um, of internal medicine, like in rotation, uh, three months of surgery, and um, three months um, as an elective. And there you can choose uh, from pediatrics to urology, but hematology is part of internal medicine. So you can choose that. And then you have, um, after that, you have six years of um, medical training, we call that. And this is um, where you choose surgery or urology or neurology and internal medicine. For instance, antimatology oncology is also part of internal medicine and only like in the final process of accreditation, you, you must do certain rotations within hematology and oncology. So you need to visit patients with pancreatic cancer, et cetera, breast cancer even, um, which is, yeah, not, I think, which keeps many, many, um, many young uh, physicians from hematology and I think maybe that was a thing that you also hint uh, pointed to is that the structure um, doesn't really 
cope with the development of hematology. I think in, in most countries, and especially in Europe, hematology needs to be uh, its own, uh, what is it called, faculty or, or education uh, platform. It, it isn't in Germany, and that's why I think that's a problem. And along the way, you then simply lose the people who then go to stem cell transplant, because stem cell transplant is an elective during uh, hematology oncology. You don't need to do that. Only if you want to work on a stem cell transplant unit, you need to do that. And the thing that I do now, I'm in second med second year of medical training, and I started with stem cell transplant. I don't know. I don't know one other person in Germany that does that. Um, but simply because I had the um, personal experience uh, before that, yeah. I think as well, hematology and particularly transplant and well every aspect of hematology so even with all the new clotting medicines and things it's becoming so niche and it's advancing at such a rate that it's becoming impossible for people to to do hematology because you can't be competent in every aspect because there's just so much I think more and more and particularly in the UK there's talk of things moving and the curriculum changing so that people do subspecialize earlier. So you'll do a few years of sort of like core hematology, but then ultimately you'll do spend more time in your subspecialty, whether you want to be a transplanter, whether you want to go into clotting, whether you want to be in the lab diagnostic side. Um, because I think the way that the world's growing and the hematology field is expanding, it'll just be impossible for people to stay up to date and be able to give appropriate advice about each different aspect. It's quite overwhelming, the kind of, you know, the papers that are being published each day, it's impossible to keep up with everything. True. Yeah. I have sit exams in like the next three months and I'm at the face of it. I'm like, okay, okay, I'm supposed to know this as well. Okay, this as well. Okay, I can't keep up with this. Yeah, it's like yeah. Uh, my, so as part of our exams, I sat my last exams back in October, 2020. So that was the last time I had to do any adult hematology, think about myeloma. And now I hear, I see people on Twitter talking about, I haven't got a clue, car teeth, myeloma. My colleague is a pediatrician and um, <laughs> it's his worst nightmare, you know, going to that Friday OPD with uh, 200 odd myeloma patients. He's like, okay, Nihar, what am I supposed to do? I mean, yeah. it's, it's so far away from what I've trained during my residency days and seeing these patients. Yeah, I, I, I get your point, you know. I'd be, I'd be that uncomfortable around, uh, you know, kids like three months old and four months old. I'm like, okay, are you crying? I don't understand why you're crying. What's wrong with you? <laughs> I think it's quite for me. It's quite odd to to see that you need to do both because I would have the same experiences. If I see a child, I would, I don't know, cry myself and run away. I don't know. Yeah, I think if there's any consolation, I think it's probably worse for the for the adult trainees who do have to spend a little bit of time in the pediatric center. Yeah. At least I did do adult medicine in those like foundation two foundation years and. Medical school is largely more adult focused, I suppose. But yeah, when suddenly the only children you'll deal with might be the the hemonc and transplant kids, then it does seem quite yeah. unfair. <laughs> and Nico, one last question, and uh, to you as well, Claire. Uh, what are the kind of transplant numbers that your centers are offering? I mean, uh, mm. uh, in a month, in a year, or however you want to put it. So I'm in probably the second visit, bus, the second biggest pediatric transplant centre in the UK here in Manchester. And I think we do about 60 allografts or so, or 60 including CAR T and gene therapy um, per year. Okay. About that. And um, I hope. <laughs> Uh, other EBMT centers won't kill me for that, but I think we are the biggest center in Europe. And old statement. Uh, yeah, <laughs> no, no, I think I think that's the case. I believe um, uh, we do basically two hundred thirty um, allotransplants transplants, and about not not that many auto transplant 30, 30 to forty, I guess, in a year. 
and and then comes um, cellular therapy, CAR T cells. We do now about I think I think forty also forty to fifty. Um, but what I what I do know and what I quite um, yeah emotional about is that we are the biggest center for myelofibrosis uh, in the world. I just um, um, had looked through. Um, data from from our centers and other centers around the world and we are the biggest in that scenario so that's true and uh, for the evmt i hope it's true but i'm maybe uh is a preliminary pre preliminary information so uh, don't hold me too tight on that <laughs> when you start getting trolled about that later <laughs> yeah. um yeah um Thank you very much. Really appreciate it. Uh, really love to talk to you. And um, I, I really would be happy to, to just use that as a start for continuous uh, communication, collaboration. And um, yeah, I'm, I think Claire and I just need to plan our visit maybe sometime this year. I don't know. Yeah. No, uh, but really would love to uh, keep on going together. Uh, thank you so much, guys. It's really been awesome. Thanks. Thanks for having me over. Uh, no. Thank you. Have a good Sunday. Wish you all the best. Thank you. <laughs> bye bye. Sunday evening. Sorry, my Sunday is ending. <laughs> oh, no. Ah, uh, yeah, it's, it's 10. Oh, oh 10. It's, it, it's okay. 11. No. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. I'm so sorry. So sorry. <laughs> no problem. I mean, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Busy meet yeah. ahead. Have a Thanks good night then. Thank you. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye bye. Take care.